Welcomes to Electric Boogaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. Medievalist Jenna Matthews is back to talk about Brand's third POV chapter. I found our conversation about symbolism fascinating. I hope you do too. Steve and I talk a little bit about spiders toward the end of our conversation. If you're arachnophobic, definitely skip the last five minutes of that. Also, Jan Doodle Wilson. My short conversation with her is in place of my usual bird's eye view. We compare Bran's characterization in the show with Danny's ultimate outcome. So don't confuse her. Don't confuse Jan with Jana. Uh, two different professors. So, without further ado, here is Bose Mang Aaron. Ask Aaron anything! Best first seasons ever ranked, all right? Game of Thrones, mm. The Wire, Breaking Bad, mm. Stranger mm. Things, or The Leftovers? Just the first Damn. season. Damn. Well, I mean, The Leftovers is my the current reigning number one on the Mount Rushmore television for me. So, like, and I thought season one was particularly fascinating because of my experience with cults and dealing like losing a mother to one and all that kind of stuff so like it's kind of cheating to throw that in um but like most others it's like a conversation because breaking bad excellent but was kind of cut short by the writer's strike and wasn't a fully formed season right so it's got that dragging it back oh um, i didn't know that about breaking yeah it's only like seven episodes long or, it's still uh, pretty uh, awesome seven episodes but and it's actually kind of good because like if it had if not been for the writer strike, Jesse Pinkman probably would have died in that first season. Oh, really? Because it was during the shutdown and editing of the season one that like uh, Gilligan and company are like, man, we really got something with this Aaron Paul kid. We yeah. should find a way to like give him more stuff to do. So like, yeah, um, the wire is just I mean, it's it's an amazing, flawless season of television. Um, isn't the, I thought wire isn't wire your favorite show? It's no it, the the leftovers dethroned it. Oh, like I, I, I wow. think the wire. Or, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and then what were the others? So uh, Game of Thrones, Wire, yeah. Breaking Bad, Stranger Things, leftovers. <sighs> Stranger Things is real good too, but it's like it's one of those things where it's not as serious. So like I I find that like things that are more serious tend to get get that extra weight. So I I mean Game of Thrones is probably in the top three of the wire and the leftovers. And I'm, I'm bumping break breaking bad out of that because it was strike shortened. And I still didn't feel like, you know, breaking bad hadn't achieved the high, like it, the breaking bad season one is the shuttle that just jetting jetting jettisoned off the, the, the boosters, right? The booster rockets. It hadn't achieved orbit yet. It hadn't gotten to mm-hmm. where it needed to be. Whereas Leftovers, man, Leftovers is a standalone, like, season one could have been it, and that that would have been a, a perfect season of television, in my mind. Uh, I felt with both The Wire and Leftovers, it took me a while to get into the season. Like, by the by the time it was like, you I, know, I the, thought the, the same thing episode, about Game of Thrones. I was like, oh, okay, I get it now. But it really took, it was really kind of a slog for me with both those shows to get into the middle of the first season. I thought the same thing about Game of Thrones because you had this, because like I didn't read the books before I saw the first episode, the first um, season. Uh-huh. Um, I, I read like up through book three 
at, between seasons one and two, and then I read the others between season two and three. So like I fo- I found the first going of ba- uh, Game of Thrones very like who is this fucker with the stones on his eyes? Who are these people? The like why is it a big deal that they're having sex? Oh, they're brothers and sisters. Oh, this other guy's their brother. Like it it took me like The Wire. Uh, is a very good example and and like um honestly like uh the expanse it took me three or four episodes to where i felt like i was in the world because they both have similar styles like david simon doesn't care mm. if you don't know who these people are he just trusts that if you give it time and you kind of let it yourself absorb into his world that you'll get it and he doesn't he doesn't want fans that don't take that effort so yeah, yeah. uh but yeah yeah like i think it's like it's but that's the thing it's like it's really hard for me to talk about individual seasons and like crowning them and stuff. But I would say that those three are kind of like, maybe, I don't know. Maybe it's just, maybe it's actually just down to, nah, I, I don't know. I don't know. Cause like leftovers, game of Thrones, um, and, and, uh, the wire all have extremely fascinating first seasons. For uh, me, stranger things and game of Thrones are kind of, on par for the best, I think. For first season, that first episode of Game of Thrones, I thought I'm hooked. I'm reading all these books. Mm-hmm. I mean that that I mean that's how that's how fast it hooked me. Well, there you go. There you go. You're uh you you're like uh you, maybe you like the pulp a little bit more than the I do the prestige. I, I mean, don't know, man. That's a good question. I, uh, that's a good question. But I'm all in for pulp. There's no doubt about that. There's no yeah, doubt yeah. About that. I do too, but the thing is, is like I don't, I don't like, uh, but I do have that bias, so I don't take it as serious. Uh, and I, the thing is, is like I don't, I don't know that. Uh, I know that for bald move purposes, we classify Game of Thrones under the pulp uh, because it's got dragons and magic and shit. But like, it certainly carries itself as a, a as a more prestige. Oh, for Although sure. that first season, first season was like it, they really leaned into the sex position and stuff. Like yeah, they, they that became less a part of Game of Thrones as it went on, but that season one's pretty gonzo yeah. when it comes to, you know. And you could point to 14 HBO first seasons that are like that. Yeah. All right, yeah. So, uh, let's stay on the topic of pulp here. Is the Terminator good? Uh the Terminator, the movie? Yeah. Is it good? I think it's good. When's the last time you watched it? <sighs> Probably 10 years ago. Uh-huh. I've seen Terminator 2 as recently as like three months ago because I sat down and, and made my and made my son watch it. Very, very uh, much a different movie. All right, let me ask you that. All right. Is the Terminator 2 good? Terminator 2 is a good is is one of the finest action movies made. Okay. Um, All right. Like the Predator. Like it's like it's. And now the thing is, is I just watched The Predator this summer, and there's a lot of stuff in The Predator that doesn't necessarily hold up culturally. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, do I think the military men in the 80s actually had some homophobia uh, and, you know, some kind of, like, jokes at the expense of the feminine? Absolutely. Yeah. So, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it does, Jesse it the kind of holds up that way. It's probably not yeah. someone you want to emulate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those guys are not, but but they're you know they're they're held out to be kind of like these kind of bad dudes, you know. Um, I feel like if I, let's say I go back and watch something like Alien, I feel like boy, oh, this Alien holds, holds up. up. This holds, holds up. up. There's no doubt about it. I go back to the Terminator and thinking it's still fun for n- nostalgia's sake, but there and it you know there are some st- brilliant things about the movie, but there's some really cringy stuff in that movie. There is. What do you think of? Okay, let me. Here's the. What do you think about the thing? Because I think the thing 
holds up like a champ, even if the practical effects don't quite work, because they're so insane and over the top that they're kind of like a spectacle in itself. Whereas, you know, when Arnold's standing in front of a mirror, digging out bullets in front of his, uh, out of his face and tearing his eyeball out, like that's just pretty clearly a, a borderline paper mache head <laughs> that they're working on. You know, like that's not like seven dogs stitched together with a squid and a crocodile mouth in the middle of it. Like I, I know what people's faces look like, and <laughs> you know, I have never seen the thing. <gasps> yeah, I know. Well, that's another one I would love to see if you watch because I never either until I watched it for some bald move thing, and I okay. was just blown away by how well it all worked. I would love to see your opinion all right. on well, whether I'll it works. Give that one a try. If you have a question for Aaron or Anthony, you can send those to book at baldmove.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jana Matthews, welcome back. I feel like I could just have you on every week, and I would look forward to it, and we would all learn something that we didn't know before. Oh, the feeling is mutual. I've been really anticipating this conversation, and I'm so happy to be here. All right, so I I got really excited when I learned about this ancient well. I got this medieval Welsh story about Bran the Blessed. Yeah. So, right. So he was a mythological king um, that, you know, that it circulated in like Welsh mythology and also, you know, because of its proximity to England, um, you know, did come up and show up in um, in various allusions to Knights of the Round Table. So it's part of that whole sort of larger tradition. Right. Um, yeah. Right. His name does mean uh, like crow or in crow and raven are kind of interchangeable terms that we see there they're obviously like they're different species um a raven is much larger than a crow but both of them have essentially the same function um there's also a connection between this this section and story and us and the crow and also sort of viking um and old norse mythology as well so it's there's an there's definitely an, um, an intersection between like brand the blessed and between sort of the symbolism and iconography of the crow slash raven i mean there are certain creatures that seem to lend themselves to stories and mythologies and like for instance like sometimes a stag is like a a messenger from the other side or something like that is is the crow or the raven does it evoke that kind of magical imagination as well Oh, 100 percent. And that's essentially its function within all forms of mythology, but particularly in uh, like in Old Norse mythology. So the to the, you know, in in that theological or mythological tradition, Odin, um, you know, is is a god. Um, He has two ravens that he sends out that sort of search the earth Mm. and sort of serve as his messengers. And so we have a link there between that and like in the Game of Thrones at the little birds, you know, who kind of right. get sent and sort of circulate around and are and are always kind of present. And then also in Game of Thrones, we we do have the ravens that um, that that show up and that are listening on the doorsteps or in the window seals. Um, so that's uh-huh. definitely where that's pulled from. Ravens and crows, they're you know kind of 
I mean, for, I don't want to collapse him for any, uh, you know, bird experts out there, but, uh, you know, essentially, <laughs> essentially serve the same purpose in the sense that they are, they're creatures that, that prey on or that live on carcasses and carrion um, or the, the dead. And so they were believed to, um, to be animals that float in, be, that inhabit both worlds, that can float sort of seamlessly oh, between the living and the dead. I love and it. So, so thus, like, you know, Bran is exactly one of those figures. He is, it's appropriate that he is, his name means crow or raven. And because he is a figure that hovers between the living and the dead right. um, in, in so many ways. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. All right. Well, this is very helpful to me. And let me just do a quick synopsis of the chapter. And then we can we can kind of delve more deeply into that. Yeah. So here's my synopsis. Bran is dreaming and he knows it. As he falls, he's discussing his situation with a crow. The crow urges him to fly, not cry. Bran believes that he will wake just before he hits the ground. He sees a golden face. He sees Winterfell from above. He sees several family members and friends. And he catches the gaze of the heart tree. He sees several characters in the distant south. He sees Vase Dothrak, he sees the Jade Sea, Ashai, which is pregnant with dragons. He looks north and sees John, he looks beyond the wall to the tundras of ice, and then finally, he sees the curtain at the end of the world, and he stares into the heart of winter. The crow, which now has three eyes, stabs his forehead. He wakes up and sees that his wolf has grown. Rob greets him. And Bran tells him that his wolf is named Summer. It's such a huge chapter. I mean, it's a it's a, only yeah. a few pages. Yeah, for sure. It, there there's so much going on um, in this particular section. Of it's the like there's a scope that Martin can use Bran's I don't know green scene for, and all of a sudden, you know, we're really you know we're in in the narrative we're tinkering around with like Sansa's bruised ego and Arya's, you know, sense of loss. And, you know, this is, it can all be viewed as a very sort of minute issues. And then you get to this chapter and it's like, oh no, this thing is like global. This is like, the scope is huge. And it's kind of foreshadowing what a lot of characters, where they will go and where they are right now. And so, Guest choice, would you be interested in talking about a plot point, a character, a theme, or shall we just climb the ladder of chaos? Let's just climb the ladder of chaos. I'm a risk taker here. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I'm glad. There's so much I want to know. So I, what's so interesting about it from a reader perspective, and maybe this just reveals me to be a, a bad slash lazy reader, where <laughs> when I'm normally reading a novel and you you have, it's very action paced and it is, it's, the plot is moving along and like, yeah. this is a cerebral passage and a cerebral chapter that doesn't seem to have any real relation to anything. And so the, the normal instinct as a reader, at least the kind of reader that I am is just to skip it, right? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> it's like there's, there's nothing going on here, right? This is just like, you know, a dream is a dream, like whatever. And yeah. kind of like a filler chapter. And I think that, that again, like if you are that kind of reader and if you're that kind of viewer who sort of sees Bran and it's just like, all right, well, you know, there's got to be some like mystical person in here who, you know, thinks he wants to play God or has some sort of connection with the other world. You tend to overlook those figures. And if you do that, then you, uh, you know, as you find out much later on, like you've made a crucial error. I the first time I read through this book, 
And I remember very distinctly thinking, oh, no, not Bran again. Like, I, I was just so bored with the Bran <laughs> chapters. And I, I think you're totally right. I feel like because it's such a departure from the things that I've been taught to care about in the book. Mm-hmm. And because there's so much going on here that I don't quite understand yet. My tendency was always to kind of try to speed read through these chapters to try to get to something that I really cared about, you know? So, yeah, I totally had that experience. I think what's interesting is that if you think about Martin as being really this antiquarian, like medievalist historian, it's probably Mm. the, the best way of thinking about it, is that, you know, he reads like an historian and he writes like an historian. And he, in the... As a medievalist, you know, one of the things that we're taught is that the page space is at a premium because you're writing, you know, it's everything's handwritten on animal, animal parchment. And so right. there's not this sense of um, like cut out this passage because it's extraneous. So everything that's in there is there for a reason and it's there intentionally. Hmm. And I, I think that Martin right, plays that same game or, or takes a, you know, a, a, a page from that. So we have to really, you know, to skip over this as sort of a reminder that like he's kind of testing our medieval sensibilities and saying, are you like, it's here for a reason. It's not just, you know, to make the book, you know, 20 pages longer. I was wondering a little bit about that, but let me, let me circle back to it. All right. Number one, let's go back to the, the, the bird, the carry on um, symbolism. Mm-hmm. They just show up and they're kind of there. And so what they, their specific names, you know, symbolize thought and memory or mind. And so when you're talking about that fluidity um, and, you know, the fluidity of brand state as he is falling, right? It's, it's very much a liminal state. You're neither right. on the ground or in the sky. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. He's in a dream, which is, is which is an, it is a, um, an in-between state. You're neither awake nor asleep. Um, he also is paralyzed at this point, right? So he's neither like fully able-bodied nor is he dead. And so he, you know, that is a sort of- Yeah, and in fact, a lot of the characters view him kind of like on death's door, right? Yeah, totally, right. I mean, and and so so his his whole existence from this point going forward is, um, is, is really like, absolutely in this like liminal space where he he's not really grounded and he's not really you can't really place him anywhere um, and so similarly with the crow and the raven you know it's part of what the raven is is doing in this passage or I mean this chapter is that he's you know he's he's giving him you know it, it, it takes place in sort of ultimatums right it's either you die or you fly mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and so here are two, you live or you die right essentially is what is, is what he's saying and kind of the in-between option he's giving him is like living through flying, um, you know, to like permanently inhabit this space, you know? And so for Brian, like he's there, there really is up until this point, it's, it's either alive or dead. And yeah. And, and he's being flying. pressured. I mean, I guess the, he's being encouraged to become something else mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or realize that he is something else. Like he, yeah. he's certain that he's a boy who's dreaming and this voice from the other side is trying to tell him, well, you're more than what you think you are, in other words. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And and this is this crucial moment of Bran has to decide whether or not he's going to listen to the messenger or if mm-hmm. he's going to disregard him. And then what that means, you know, gaining the confidence like, and it's sort of a test, right? If he chooses to listen to the crow, which he does, then that proves himself as a worthy receptacle of continued information and access and like sort of the mythological sense to the gods. Yeah, right. Okay, so I am 
super appreciative of the way that Martin is using dreams because I really feel quite annoyed with this sort of lazy storytelling technique where people remember something that happened earlier in their life and they're remembering in a dream state and then they wake up and that's the way that the the storyteller can kind of give you a, a little bit of backstory. Mm-hmm. But it's totally lazy because that's not how dreams work. <laughs> I mean, you, you might process memories in sort of weird ways, but you don't actually remember things as they were in your dreams. And I see this so often in storytelling where people use dreams in ways that dreams don't really actually work. But Martin fall into that trap. He's using Brand's dream here to kind of tell us about his current state rather than his backstory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, I guess I just really appreciated the way he did. He was able to do that. And, you know, all that is to say that I appreciate it. You know, this reading, I, I don't know if I appreciated it so much the first time. Yeah. I mean, sometimes dreams are used to tell the past, recall the past. And this one is, is used to push the narrative forward, which is a profound literary difference. Yeah. I'm going to read this little section here. The crow landed on his hand and began to eat. Are you really a crow? Bran asked. Are you really falling? The crow asked back. It's just a dream, Bran said. Is it? asked the crow. I'll wake up when I hit the ground, Bran told the bird. You'll die when you hit the ground, the crow said. It went back to eating corn. Okay, I got two questions. Mm-hmm. Okay, first of all, did this remind you of Bran's interactions with Maester Lewin later on where Lewin's always trying to tell Bran, it's just a, a dream is just a dream. A dream is just a dream. It almost seems like a little parallel here. Yeah, no, I didn't think about that. But now that you mention it, right, that does um, absolutely play out in, uh, in interesting ways. Tell me more. Okay, well, I just, I, I really liked that. I, Lewin is almost a stand-in for sort of the, yeah. like, non-supernatural, you know, scientifically-minded person. And in, in, in many ways, he's a stand-in for the modern reader, right? <laughs> and one of the first things that, that Bran has to figure out is that his dreams are not really dreams. Because he has these kind of dreams, and he has wolf dreams. And one of the things that he sees happening toward the end of this book is that... Uh, he dreams that he sees his father in the crypts of Winterfell. Mm. And Rickon has the same dream. And of course, Lewin is trying to explain that, you know, your your father's alive. Don't worry. He's not in the crypt. A dream is just a dream. But here we go, you know, super early in the book. Here we are. Bran is being told specifically by the crow that it, this is not just a dream. That was my first. Yeah. Yeah. My first observation. Okay, here, now I need your help. Is is this corn thing out of place? My impression is that corn is a North American crop. And in the medieval world, they wouldn't have known what corn was. Did that strike you as misplaced? Yeah, and no, it's 100% misplaced. Um, and I don't know. <laughs> you know. Maybe we're reading too much into in terms of what... Um, Martin is doing or not doing. Um, I right, but but for sure, yeah. It, it was there. There was no corn. <laughs> so I looked up. I looked up like when did when was corn first introduced to Europe? Like 
16th century, right? Yeah, it's 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 almost like the it was one of the first things that Columbus brings back mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. him. So it's like 1493 or something like that. But I mean, there's no way it would have been widely used. Yeah. So I mean, I maybe I'm nitpicking or whatever, but it did kind of strike me as, mm-hmm. hmm, <laughs> why corn, Martin? Yeah. So I don't. The only thing I can think of is. And this feels like a, if this is what Martin meant, like a particularly bad choice, just given all the other terms that you could could use. But I mean, there is this colloquial sense um, in the Middle Ages and early modern period that like corn stands in for just a like a general category of field crop. Oh, and so so it can like, it, you know, so oftentimes you might refer it to wheat or to barley or to huh. um, other kinds of things. But, but but still, like given its sort of specific historical like register, it feels like that he should have just said wheat or barley if that's what he meant. Uh, yeah, see, I I guess I shouldn't. I mean, there's zombies in this story, so I shouldn't be. I know. Too, too no, but, right. But like, if, if this feel that that feels like, a, given all the other things that he um, that he gets, gets right, right yeah. yeah, right. Like the depth of even <laughs> the symbolism of Bran, um, uh, right, feels. It feels like a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Now, so we already touched a little bit on Norse mythology with the crow imagery, right? Mm-hmm. Tell me about this vision of kind of this curtain at the end of the world. Mm-hmm. This seems connected to Norse, the Norse cosmology, where there actually is sort of like this. End of the world. This edge, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, very much so. So I think, you know, maybe say one more thing about the dream vision and and the dream vision is a really, really common um, trope and stylistic device used throughout the Middle Ages and Mm -hmm. medieval literature across Europe. Um, One of the most common, um, that and the frame narrative, right? So Chaucer's Canterbury Tales is frame narrative, a story within a story, right? This is also a story within a story, um, this whole book, but, but dreams do have tremendous significance they're not viewed as jokes um in the middle ages they're they're very much um opportunities what by which human like the, the earth people in the, in, in the human world can commune with and have receive inspiration from other worlds right um and the other thing is is that dreams also allow a certain level of play because it is in this as we remember we started out in this sort of nebulous um fluid sphere of existence you're allowed to have things happen in dreams like they, they can't really happen in real life. Um, and so, you know, thus we have a crow talking to a young boy and him flying and like all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it allows an, an, an alternative world to be built that is simultaneously held by and has meaning within the real world, but is not held to the kind of temporal constraints um, that the world would demand. So you can, you simultaneously can have, and what we do have here are visions and sights and images of things that are serious and that are real and that you can see and that are have meaning and context within the real world but also at the same time have like a boy who's flying and talking to a crow and both of those things can be true um so when you're talking about the end of the world right in in norse mythology and you know the world uh you know in human existence ends and in this massive battle that uh, the gods and the humans and the giants and all sorts of living creatures participate in called Ragnarok. Um, and so and that is a gigantic battle where everyone essentially kind of kills each other. Um, and then with, with very few survivors and the survivors go on to kind of create new worlds. And so 
this the sense of and I think that's important because it, it kind of pushes against the um, the like Judeo Christian uh, kind of myth mythology of like the you know simul similarly like ends in a big battle right, and not right, everybody right. dies right like there's a winner and somebody emerges victorious and here like everyone dies you know and so there's that sense of like right like as you described it as the cliff at the end of the world where like there is no hero or villain everyone is it's just done um hmm. and 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 that i think is 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 very much like maybe also gets worked its way in here when you think about dying i mean this is a theory right like when, when he's thinking about the choice between fly or die like death doesn't provide an alternative here doesn't provide an alternative sphere by which you can you know another kind of life it's over right 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 and so there's there's added level of stakes here you know yeah and i mean if we if we think of it in terms now of course martin's going to play with this idea of uh, you know sort of the undead marching yeah, south sure. right but if you know we're not told what brand sees that kind of you know chills him and frightens him that's beyond the edge of the world but i think it's safe to assume that he sees sort of some sort of symbolic realm of death or something like that um which is exactly what he's staring down at the ground if he hits the ground right uh so that maybe sort of a microcosm macrocosm thing happening where Bran is maybe personally contending with the possibility of death. Like he might be in between life and death, but with his green sight, he can see all the way North to see this massive event. That's sort of right on the horizon that also represents death. Mm -hmm. This is a complex, a complex passage. I mean, our complex chapter that yeah. I think is, is, is really, um, is really tricky. And I'm sort of simultaneously, stuck between um, do I do I overread am I overreading or underreading here right. and maybe that's maybe that's part of the the beauty of it so there's this statement where okay it's it's this part of the dream where he sees a bunch of symbols mm -hmm. and maybe I should just read it um, one shadow was dark as ash with the terrible face of a hound Another was armored like the sun, golden and beautiful. Over them both loomed a giant, an armor made of stone. But when he opened his visor, there was nothing inside but darkness and thick black blood. Okay. So, contextually, Bran has seen a bunch of people he knows. So, he's seen, like, Jon Snow... He's seen his brother. He's seen his mother. And he. so we're getting a sense that he's seen real people. Mm -hmm. And then we get these symbols, because I guess Bran doesn't have a good idea of who these people are. He's just describing what he's seen. Terrible face of a hound. I'm assuming that that's the hound, right? Um, armor like the sun, golden and beautiful. That sounds like Jamie Lannister. I, I'm, I'm guessing at this point. But then over them looms a giant made of stone. But when he opened his armor, there was nothing inside but darkness and thick black blood. Who do you think the giant is? So that was interesting because 
when I was reading those passages um, or that, that, that same symbolism, um, I now that you've said it, I think I, you can for sure, um, you know, attach them to specific individuals. And it makes sense given the fact that he's, you know, immediately kind of gone through his family and his friends. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. So it makes sense that they'd be referring to specific people. Um, but I think I the fact that they were deep, you know, like, they were not given a specific fate. Like, I guess there was a terrible face of the hound, but the other one is sort of a shadow. And the other one is a, is a figure that's armored, that's sort of empty. Yeah. I took them more of just um, in, in a generalized sense about kind of the 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 danger that lurks, um, you right. know, in the world outside of his family. And sure. so, but, yeah, that's, you know, as far as the, the giant armor made of, you know, iron made of stone. I, um, I think I yeah. like that. I think I like that interpretation better, better than anything I found. I, I kind of, jumped on a couple of fan forums yeah and some people are saying it's you know it's it's uh you know gregor some people say it's Littlefinger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. um some people say it's uh you know this is sort of a stand-in for the titan of bravos mm-hmm. and some people say it's Tyrion because uh the, the black the 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 black brotherhood it's like they have black blood. There's like a symbol that they use for that. And maybe Tyrion at some point will join their, their ranks or something. I didn't find any of those compelling. Yeah. And it's so vague to me that it either, to me, it sounds like maybe it's not a who, maybe it's a what. So your interpretation would be like, it's kind of this ominous looming danger that's kind of overshadowing everything. If you look at the line before that, it says there were shadows all around them. Yeah. And so the, I think the point of a shadow is, is that this is at least how I interpret it, right? Like shadow obscures and it hides identity. It also can, it, it also reveals things or makes things appear that they're seem as if they're there, but they're not. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it can be a, a metaphor, a symbol of, of just fear itself, a fear of anxiety. Like every, you know, things that lurk in the shadows are, um, are things real and also imagined. And, and so it's just sort of like, I, I sort of took it as this like looming dread that kind of comes and, and lurks, but you can't really put, you can't, it doesn't, it doesn't really inhabit, it hasn't had a body yet um, or one that you can identify. Yeah. And, so, and, and all of these figures are, are obscured. You know, like you can't, you can't see their faces. They're not described even as fully human, um, right? The blood of a hound even. We know, we, we learn later, okay, that that's a real person, but but still, at this point, it's just this, you know, big amorphous body. Yeah, right. And, you know, it's symbolism, right? But yeah. like you were saying before, you know, Martin chooses, it seems to be choosing his words pretty carefully. And this is a pretty tightly, I, I feel like it's a pretty tight novel. I don't feel like there are many sort of stray plots that don't go anywhere, little details that are not for a purpose. So the fact that he included it here makes me wonder, well, he wants, he's pointing to something and it just isn't really clear to me right now what that is. Yeah, exactly. Let me uh, do some notable introductions in the chapter. There's several geographic areas that we're hearing for the first time. Like, for instance, he sees to the Jade Sea and to Ashai, which he interprets as sort of a volcanic area, but underneath the the ground is dragons. Mm-hmm. Um, so that we're kind of getting a little bit of Martin's mythology there for the first time. 
In addition to that, it's possible that we're seeing this, you know, certain characters represented that we haven't really met yet, you know, depending on how we interpret this giant character. And then book versus show differences. I think that the one thing that you could say here is that one of the virtues of the show is that it has those opening credits with the basically the map of Westeros and Essos, right? Mm-hmm. And so every single time you revisit the show, you have the option to kind of survey the geography of this hybrid setting. You don't get that with the book. And this this chapter almost functions a little bit like that, those opening credits. Because through Brand's point of view, you could really get the sense of the vast geography, really the, the map of this story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, th- I thought, I don't know, this, you know, this is chapter is not really represented in the show, but it kind of is a stand-in for those opening credit, you know, castle sequences. Yep. I love that. That makes, I, I love the way of thinking about that. Really great. Have you ever, have you ever had a falling dream? I have had a falling dream and they're scary as heck. I mean, did you wake up before you hit the ground? I did. <laughs> Were you actually falling out of bed or anything like that? No, I just feel like I'm falling off a cliff. And, you know, and so I I think what's so, yeah, what's so interesting about this chapter is that it's playing on such a common trope. And then there's always that kind of cultural myth. I don't even know if it's true or not, that if you, if you hit the ground, you know, it cannot be true. Right. But like, if you hit the ground in your dream, you'll actually die. Yeah. And I like, don't, that, that does not make any sense. Um, but um, but but I think what's what's happening here is that we also he has this you know this dream that he's having, but he's also this is also the moment when he wakes up right kind of for the first time, uh-huh. and and so it's a dream, but it's also like something much much deeper than that too. It's it's not just like I'm taking a nap and I've had this dream. It's it's like people you know he's he's in this in this space um, of like liminality, like really and truly between life and death. Or we don't know how long. Yeah, I I took it when the crow says, if you hit the ground, you're going to die. I think that that's sort of, as a reader, I was kind of interpreting that as you're that close to death. You you are really in between right now. And and this this may well result in your death unless you can learn how to fly. Yep, yep. Um, And that could just be interpreted as, you know, waking up or whatever. But... It also we know that it also has some connection to his, you know, his sort of future self. Yeah, it totally, absolutely, yeah, all of the above. I used to have a recurring falling dream nightmare when I was a kid, and it was like almost like out of like a nineteen thirties movie, with like without you know without any kind of uh, sound. <laughs> There was like this this evil villain with like a horrible mustache and uh he he was t- he tied me to the top of a ladder and then the ladder fell and was going to like hit this body of water. I must have had that dream a dozen times when I was a kid. Ooh. And every time I woke up before it hit hit the, actually hit the water, but for whatever reason a recurring nightmare about falling. So I don't know what that means. Can you help it me? Means, it means maybe, I was going to say, I'm like, 
maybe your brand, maybe the crows are going to come talk to you pretty soon. (laughs) You're sort of in that same liminal space. (laughs) Maybe you didn't pass the test and therefore weren't able to rise to the occasion. (laughs) Steve, this episode starts with the Greyjoys killing all of the ravens. Yeah. They're dumping these messengers, these probably very friendly, intelligent animals. They're just dumping corpses right out the window. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is they feel that the the ravens are the mainstream media and they're the enemy of the Greyjoys. And they're just, you know, it's, this, this is their, their nod fake to fake news. Yeah. yeah. All right. All right. I thought that was an interesting way to begin because there's a lot of lack of information that's happening. I got a few things that are mentioned in this episode. First, Tywin thinks that Jamie is Rob's prisoner. Right. He doesn't have all of the information yet. No. And Rob thinks that the Lannisters have his sisters. In other words, the Lannisters have Arya. Right. And you could say that they do. I mean, Tywin does technically sure. have Arya. But he also thinks that Bran and, um, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Walnut Boy are prisoners. For sure, Cat and Rob think that Bran and Rickon, or as as he's known, Walnut Boy, <laughs> Ricky Walnuts, <laughs> Ricky Walnuts. There was a lesser known gangster in Godfather <laughs> Three. No one really saw Godfather Three all the way through, but there right. is a Ricky Walnuts. <laughs> It's just a force to be reckoned Everybody knows Ricky Walnuts. His brother's got no legs. <laughs> I mean, he's got legs. They just don't work. Uh, all right. So, yeah. So, we have less information. However, we meet a character named Lord of Bones. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he happens to know that Ned's dead. Yeah. So, that news has spread. Yeah. So, But, I mean, that's, there's been some time. There's been a little time since the end of season one. Right. I mean, there's been some time for things to get out to the Lord of Bones. We don't know what the Lord of Bones networking system is quite yet. They're like, the, the Wildlings have like, they have a different Netflix menu. <laughs> and they will eventually get what we get early on in Southern West. I, I feel like they play some hard rock gigs like in town, kind of like a guar like band. And so they're, when they're there, you know, as they're packing up their equipment at the end, everyone's just, how oh, did you hear about Ned? Ned's dead, man. Now, Lord of Bones, he's not only wearing a hat, he's wearing a face mask. Yeah, he's he's like if Freddy and Jason were to work together. He's like they had a baby. That's right, Lord he's of the, Bones. Lord of Bones is the love child of Freddy and Jason. Yep. Huh. It all makes sense now. My goodness. So Lord of Bones can be talked into keeping John alive. Yeah. Apparently. Uh, did you buy that whole thing? I was. I had a quick. couple problems. I had a couple problems with the the north of the wall sequence. Yeah, I mean, it was. Uh, this is one of those that feels like a, a means to an end plot mover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of my big problem was okay. You're whispering as you're walking, mm-hmm. and the guy is right behind you. I mean, maybe that like bone face. <laughs> Maybe that's like uh, it's, it's like a Batman. It's like when you hear about like the Batman cowl from like Michael Keaton. He's just like it made it impossible to turn your head. You couldn't hear out of the you thing. You couldn't hear anything. Super impractical. Right. And like Lord of Bones is like, look, I know how cool it looks, all right, but there's certain there's certain things you have to give. <laughs> so then 
then Corin Halfham pushes him down the slope or whatever. And Yigra's just eating it up. She's just like, oh, now I can trust him because he's in a fight with this other Night's Watchman. I think that she's really smart, and it's hard to believe that she's being fooled by this. Yeah, in fact, my expectation was that she would be like, see through it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so any notion that she wasn't, I was kind of like, hmm, I feel like we've just sort of watered down this. Although, Steve, we've all known really intelligent people who make bad decisions when they fall in love. It's fair. Yeah, you see what you want to see, what you're saying. Like Sam. Yeah. Like like Sam, we're on the record for saying that Sam is acting like a dummy. Actually, Sam is fairly intelligent, but a girl has never given him the time of day. And as soon as one does, yeah, then he's a dummy. Right. No, and that's fair. And I think, you know, I, I feel like you just talked yourself into that scene, which is probably good. Yeah, I did. And maybe I'm in love. I'm in love with, <laughs> with, with this show. And so I just, yeah, I'm making so, poor yeah, decisions. Exactly. There you go. No, and but, but I think that that's, you see, I mean, I, and speaking of love, I mean, what a great scene between uh, Rob and, uh, what's her name? Talisa. Talisa, yeah. I mean, that was a great, like, it was like kind of like a nice little, the drop of water that we talked about when you're in a desert of tension, yeah, yeah. right? And so like when he has that moment, I don't want to marry the lady Fry. <laughs> it's just. <laughs> okay, well. I'm glad you enjoyed the scene. I had problems with it. Okay. My main problem being when she walks in the tent, that flap is wide open. Oh, yeah. Well. And I'm just thinking, I'm not a big fan of overt displays of affection on this show. Uh, a, a lot of times because they're gross. <laughs> <laughs> Any, anytime Littlefinger is doing a, a voiceover. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Uh, all right, so this one did not have a little finger voiceover. However, <laughs> it felt like it could have. <laughs> it felt like it could have. And I'm just thinking, like, I'm watching these two fall in love, and it's very compelling. I'm sold on this. I'm sold right. that they've fallen in love. They've actually, I think that the showrunners have done enough work to sort of make this affair believable. Yeah. But I'm just sitting there thinking, close the flap. Yeah. Close I- the flap on the tent. I had that moment, and then I was also kind of like, I mean, you're the king. Exactly. That's the baller move to say, look, I'm I'm in such a different class. Leave that it actually doesn't matter. <laughs> Leave the flap <laughs> I don't get that sense from Rob, though. No, but I also get the sense that like he wasn't thinking of, well, I was. <laughs> it's a weird thing to say, given the scene, but I don't think he was thinking of flaps. <laughs> <laughs> Flaps in the spinal tap sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I just look. I, I believe that they love each other. That's fine. I just closed the flap on the tent, and you and you sold me. Now here's the other option. It could be that Rob's got a guard out there, and as soon as the guard sees what's happening, he like closes the flap door for him. Right. But isn't that a little bit creepy? Like, you got a wingman that's closing the door behind your girlfriend? That's a little creepy. Well, I mean, get the hand of the king. I guess to each each their own. I mean, as long as we're all consenting adults, I suppose I shouldn't judge. Hope it's a lovely bridge. This episode's really setting up the battle, right? Yeah. And at this point in the history of the show, Game of Thrones was sort of getting a reputation for not putting any battle scenes on screen. Mm. 
if you think about like all the major battles, like Tyrion gets knocked out and then he wakes up and finds out what right. what happened. Uh, you don't really see Jamie captured. You just hear about it. You and you don't even see Theon go over the walls. He just walks into Bran's bedroom. Right, that's true. And I think that this, for the most part, it was a budget thing. Like it costs a lot of money to film a major Braveheart style battle scene. Yeah, um, that makes sense. So, yeah. So so far, they haven't really proven themselves. But I think that they are setting up for a you know a grand finale, right? So do you do you like that kind of film? Do, are you, were you a, a fan of Lord of the Rings, Braveheart kind of gladiator stuff? Yeah, I was. But I, I think I've also become fatigued over it over the years. Once you start to see it a lot, I feel like there's not much new under the sun. I remember when first seeing Braveheart, how engrossing the magnitude of that kind of battle was. And then you see it again, and then you see it again. And then by the time, I'll be honest, by the time I got to the Lord of the Rings, that was the least interesting part for me as huh. a viewer. Yeah, um, really? So, and maybe, and again, I think it's because I had battle scene fatigue. Uh huh. I felt that way about Gladiator, because everyone loved Gladiator. And they got pretty creative with... Well, you don't like, you don't like Russell Crowe. I hate Russell Crowe, man. Even now that he's fat? I give him a little bit. I give him a little bit of leeway now that he's fat. He's real big now. Yeah, I think maybe that's what I was waiting for. And but I only want to see him in scenes that really sort of plays out. Like I want to see him play Santa or something, or at least get out of a chair uh, labored or Taft. Like when's the last time you saw a good Taft biopic? <laughs> True. Yeah, it just all takes place in the tub. <laughs> So you are a little bit, let me put words into your mouth. You have set a really high bar for these sort of medieval battle sequences. Yeah. And so next episode, we're going to have to see if it titillates you. Yeah. Because there's a good chance that it will not titillate you. Yeah. And that's, I think, where I'm, as I see this coming, I'm kind of like, I'd be all right with uh if it just goes like four days later, you know, or something. <laughs> well, so far, that's what they've done. Yeah, and I've actually been okay with that. Because, I mean, to me, I probably feel the same way about big battle scenes as I do a lot of the uh, gratuitous sex scenes. Yeah, don't, yeah, yeah. It doesn't add much more to the plot moving forward. And and so so I find myself kind of like, I need a little more dialogue. I need a little more game playing. And I don't feel like this is moving us closer to that. Well, yeah, all right. So this episode is all about the dialogue, all about the... Putting the pieces in motion, right? Right. And another 100% Rotten Tomatoes score. Uh, so people are really digging this season in, back in 2012. And yet they're digging the intrigue more than anything, I think. Yeah. And you, and that's probably where you're at, too. Yeah, I would say so. All right. Okay. Danny says something that's interesting. She says... The dragons are my children. In fact, they're the only children I'll ever have. Yeah. Now, this this is something of a divisive topic. Because is she saying, I'll get your take on this. Is she saying, my womb is barren? Or is she saying that she's just not interested in... In letting her womb become a king factory. That's what I got. Um, 
Right, because I got the sense at this point that she's not interested in being a queen. She's interested in being the king. Right. Yeah. Well, okay. now, now, while she uses maternal terms constantly with the mother of dragons, I think she sees that as beyond a gender role. So I got the sense that it's like, look, yeah, and that because that's come up a lot, right? I mean, like the previous episode, Cersei and Sansa talking about you know, children and all of this and that. And there's a burden that goes with it to a certain degree. Your identity is, is forged into this now. And that's, that's your, that's what you've got. That's the only power you have. Now, in this case, the idea of being the mother of dragons is like, well, I'm, they're my children. They're my power. Not so much. The only power I have now is to take care of my children so that they may have power someday. It is. I'm the mother of power. Yeah. And, and I don't, I don't have any interest in subjugating to to another life. Mm, yeah, she knows what it's like not to have power. So I got the sense that it's like this is it. This is I'm not I'm not going to be. Yeah, I'm not here to create a king. Now there is another more literal way to read this because she's had some birthing shenanigans. True, and she's had some sort of black sorcery going on yeah. with her last pregnancy. And it very well could be that she just doesn't think she's ever going to have a normal baby. Right. But you're taking it as it's a, it's a choice thing. It's like, look, I'm never going to be that kind of queen. Right. Sam needs a toothbrush. Yeah, boy. I mean, That's... for a guy that, yeah, that a guy who just got a girlfriend, he just got his first girlfriend. Yeah, you right. gotta take care of those teeth, man. Figure it out, man. Just figure it out. <laughs> Steve, have you ever baked a pie? I haven't. I mean, I've. I feel like I've maybe um, been maybe a sous baker. In that a, a sous chef? You were a sous chef? Maybe. I mean, like in terms of like helping. A pie yeah. be baked, but I don't. Sure. I, I, <laughs> oh, I, cannot, I see. <laughs> I cannot. Uh, I cannot take any credit for the actual baking of the pie. I mean, I may have um, opened the door and uh, at, at the request of, does it look done? And then I open it and go, I don't know what I'm looking at. You know, hot pie is just passionate about pie. Well, it's in the name. I mean, <laughs> it'd be weird if it wasn't. You know, there are names that are ironic nicknames. True. But I guess Game of Thrones Slim. really hasn't figured that out yet. <laughs> Westeros is a literal uh, region. It's very literal. The first guy that comes along with an ironic nickname is just going to be the hoot. He's just right. going to be the, the toast of the town. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, gonna, exactly. Big guy's going to walk in. They're going to call him Tiny, and everyone's just going to roll on the floor. <laughs> yeah, someone's going to refer to the mountain as the molehill, and everyone's going to be like, What? <laughs> This is absurd. Have you seen his size? Oh, oh, oh. Have you ever thought about being a comic in a previous era, Steve? <laughs> like a jester. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, that's what it would probably be. Because you would try to do your stuff. Right. right? And they would turn up their noses at you. They wouldn't know right. what to do would, with I'd, I'd fall and then bring me the one who falls. <laughs> You'd have to know how to juggle. That's... You could probably tired of hearing his phallus jokes. You could probably do your wine country jokes if well juggling. Yeah, I think so. 
They would put up with a lot of wine country jokes. <laughs> yeah, juggling is the great equalizer. Juggling. So interesting you brought up the pie because uh, a conversation over uh, this last week that I had with some other uh, comics, um, there's, and I don't know how you feel about this, and I don't want to sidetrack the podcast too much, but I mean, there are some very strong feelings about pineapple on pizza, for example. Yeah, it is as divisive as anything that's happening in this country right now. Right. I mean, it is the defund the police of entrees. So um, the the discussion, you know, is this person very, very anti-pineapple on pie. And he went so far as to say, I don't think, I, I hate all hot fruit. Oh. So it, it went beyond the pineapple itself. It went beyond the notion of pizza. But I said, so... I take it you don't like pie, so this makes this conversation a little bit more challenging because, you know, if, I'm not saying you have to like pie, but I mean, yeah. to, and he's he's like, well, I like pie, and I said, well, I'm judging by this that you're only a, like a, you know, a chocolate cream pie type person, right? Mm-hmm. And I think his intention was like, well, he he likes cold pie, and I'm like, well, so you like hot fruit just in different stages of hotness. I said, so in that case, you should be okay with cold. Mm-hmm. pineapple pizza mm-hmm. and that's where the conversation kind of ended because i'll try to be honest on this i know that i'm probably going to lose half our audience by taking a position on this right i mean this is a tough one my feeling about pineapple on pizza is a it's a very hipster thing to say to, to be a, to, to be to against, be against it. it okay yeah. Because uh, it's not my preferred pizza. I, I would not prefer pineapple on pizza. And because I'm not eating pizza very often, I would probably not, you know, you're, go. You're not going to throw away your pizza in your regard. because you're. It's, yeah, it's I'm not going to waste my carbs on, on Hawaiian pizza. Gotcha. However, I, I don't feel like making a strong stance on Hawaiian pizza does anyone any good except for it to win me hipster points yeah i would say that that seems uh that said i do prefer my pie cold okay mm-hmm. so you don't like it coming right out the oven you don't go get an apple pie from mcdonald's you don't um well uh i think that it's not like i would turn up my nose at a hot dessert but if given the choice like this just came out of the fridge i baked it yesterday or you know, this just came out of the oven. I'll take the one out of the fridge. Okay. Now, I would prefer cobbler with a scoop of vanilla ice cream. Would you like it warm? I would like it warm, yeah. Yeah, that, that, see, now that's the thing, right? I mean, if it's an a la mode situation, mm-hmm. I think one of the overarching appeals to uh, a la mode, not only is ice cream delicious and should be a part of every meal, um, it's the contrast. Much like the pineapple on the pizza bringing a certain amount of sweetness to something that's a little more salty and savory. And that's why I prefer my pineapple pizza with a little jalapeno in the mix. Oh my goodness. You've just brought a third way into this argument. In fact, I believe that the best way to enjoy pineapple on pizza is not with the Canadian bacon option, but with pepperoni and jalapeno. It's too much, man. I, no, 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 no. I, I, I'm afraid. Yeah. I'm afraid yeah. I can't go that far with you. However, mm-hmm. if it was just you and me and night on the town, and you're like, "Dude, you got to try it," I would not turn it down. 
Uh, and you would, and it would, it would change your point of view. I think, I think, because you say it's too much, and then you realize because you are like, yeah, I like pineapple on pizza. What you think is too much is yeah. exactly enough to make pineapple a desirable topic. Hmm. Interesting. That's the, that's my case for the day. I'm an adventurous eater, Steve. Uh, I w- I will uh, try new things. Would you try lamprey pie? <laughs> I'll tell you what, hot pie is adventurous too, and I'll tell you why. I'll go on. Uh, he's suggesting grinding the stone of the cherry. Right, right. And sprinkling it on the crust of the pie. And this is actually a debate in the world of culinary science because cherry pits do indeed have an enzyme that can become cyanide. Mm-hmm. So they can be a little bit poisonous. I don't think that they're poisonous enough to do any real damage to you. And I think that you can cook all the poison out. Okay. But I've gone to a few blogs and I've gone to bonappetit.com. And uh, it seems to me that uh, that hot pie is in the right. You can cook with the pits of cherries. See, hot pie is just sort of considered throwaway. And he's like, oh, he's just got this big appetite. But he's a little bit of a gourmand. <laughs> He really is. He's a genius that will not be appreciated in his time. No, I mean, this is if there was ever a reason to have like another book series. Ari is just focused on people dying, like murder. She's focused on murder. Yeah. And uh, and hot pie. Now, now we could we could view hot pie differently. We could say, no, he's a much uh, more underhanded character because he's actually poisoning pie. True. He may, maybe he knows a little something about that. (laughs) He's like, let's just eat to death. (laughs) He just likes to hang out. He likes, he's not really doing any work. Gendry is like, uh, you know, he's like making horseshoes. Hot pie is just hanging out. Which is what I, that's what kind of got me. I'm looking at the, like, this is the unsavory tone of this entire area and the awful things they said to Arya and just, in general, it's just, just mucky. Yet hot pie just seems like, like, what is, what makes hot pie so charming that he could just get a, I mean, (laughs) is it, it, is he, is he just keeping these, these 'er ne'er-do-wells just flush with pie and they're just like, look, I mean, he hasn't worked like an hour. Man, he does this thing with the cherry stones. I don't even care if it'd kill me. It's delightful. I really think that if you had skills like of just a, a moderately talented chef uh, in today's world, you'd be one of the wealthiest people in the world, in the, in the ancient world, because sure. you would have kings and queens demanding your services. Well, I mean, we've, I mean, considering that this entire episode does have a food component to it, I mean, we hear from Stannis and about how, you know, oh, yeah. homeboy shows up with some, with something other than rat and dog and dudes would, <laughs> would give up their vows. <laughs> just, <laughs> just for an onion, just yeah. for an onion. Yeah. So this brings me to my next question. All right. So Stannis. I think he's been forced into being an adventurous eater. Like, he wouldn't normally eat horse and cat and dog. <laughs> I love that. I don't really like cats. I don't really like cats, so I don't mind eating the cat. So I'll eat it, because, I mean, they're not my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> like he dated a woman with a cat that was just real ornery, so he's just like, <laughs> so every time I just eat it, I think of that cat. <laughs> now tell me, would you consider yourself an adventurous eater? 
And have you ever been that adventurous? <laughs> I consider myself to be relatively adventurous, especially at this age. I mean, earlier I was not. Um, but at this age, I mean, if I'm at a place and someone's like, dude, you got to try this, I am more, more likely than not will try it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, what would be an example of something that uh, I might guffaw at that you've eaten? Hmm. It's a really good question. Yeah, and, and, and I think, yeah, the, and the reason why I think this question is hard to answer now is because I'm just like, I mean, hey, whatever. Um, You're like, you frequent like food orgies now, so it doesn't. Really yeah, matter. it's just, I mean, everything is, it's, if is fondue now. I'm, I'm, I'm mostly fondue. But see, but the thing is, you too, I, I, what would you turn your nose up at? Because, I mean, you, you grew up in the same mm-hmm. sort of West Coast sensibility. You, you may find yourself in the Midwest now, so you may not have as much mm-hmm. access. But, I mean, I know you have, uh, you still have the five things you won't eat. The, the list is growing smaller. I still will not eat spiders. I would never eat a spider. Okay. Uh, Willingly could, or knowingly. Yeah. I, well, I mean, I'm sure that I've had my mouth open at night and swallowed something unbeknownst to me yeah you've eaten spiders i mean <laughs> I it's just i just don't want to know how many yeah you don't and that's one of the things when you get to heaven it'll be one of the least favorite things you find this out is just the idea of knowing that you could find out how many spiders that you've yeah. eaten then it becomes hell right exactly see that's the thing is you go up there and you and the thing about heaven is you're there for a minute i mean it's a long time and so at some point, someone's at gonna some tell point you. you're going to you're going to run out of things to talk about. <laughs> and then you're going to run gonna into say, that. Hey, uh, let's go look at the spider book. No, you're no, gonna, no, one guy's, guy's going to come up to you. But I know I know what's on your mind. <laughs> I can just tell you. And you're like, ah, another time, perhaps. And then it's like, you know, an eon later. And he's like, I mean, sorry, come on, we've. We've kind of rehashed a lot. We've talked about the girls you could have slept with in high school. The answer is 1,014. <laughs> and then he See, walks away. And you're yeah. like, ah! <laughs> I feel like anything over the teens, and I would just, it would be hell. It would be hell on earth. And you, you know gotta, it's yeah. over the teens. You know oh, it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's over the teens. If, if you're a snorer, you're just sucking in babies. <laughs> I did not anticipate this conversation being so. Well, you horrific. asked about you asked about pie. Yeah, the pie is it's a delightful topic, even if it's poison pie. I would eat poison pie before I'd eat a spider. No. <laughs> and that does it for this episode. When we were talking about Bran in our previous conversation, we were talking about how, in many ways, he's this, you know, very innocent character, but he has this relationship with Hodor that's very abusive. Abusive, right? Yeah. It's almost like mind rape. We've been talking about rape, right? So, yeah. So, Hodor sort of gets mind raped. And yet, we. You know, we realize it doesn't sort of turn us against Bran because we're rooting for Bran and we know how powerless Bran is and how and he's in this really dangerous situation and he doesn't really understand his own power. And I wonder if we should be looking at Danny in the same way. You know, here's someone that's really powerless 
who's got a few tricks that she can use. And yet at a time she's going to abuse this power in a way that doesn't necessarily need to turn her evil in our eyes. Maybe I'm trying to force an analogy here. I don't know. No, you're right. You're right. I think one thing, and I'm sure Martin will do it much, much better, but I think what, what bothered me as a fan of the show and the books, books first and then show as a woman, as a feminist, as a disability advocate, so many things bothered me about the way in which Danny did what she did in the bells. And, you know, it's like that moment where the showrunners even described it as her snapping, Yeah. right? That she's on her dragon. They've surrendered. She snaps. She goes crazy. She burns everybody alive. And Danny deserves so much more as a character. I think that that did a disservice to her character. I think it perpetuated some really damaging stereotypes about people with, with mental disabilities. I was very concerned about that. It plays into this very tired, boring trope of again, powerful woman goes crazy. All kinds of think pieces were written about this. It was just like you said earlier, that word lazy, it was just lazy, a lazy way to do it. So Mm -hmm. I'm curious to see if we know that that's maybe where Danny will end up where the power and the adoration skew her so much in terms of her own sense of who she is Mm -hmm. and what she's entitled to, Mm -hmm. whether she'll be betrayed further, um, whether, who knows? I I have faith. I I have faith in (laughs) Gurm. I have faith that we'll get to a blaze with Danny that maybe if it's not the ending we want, because you're right, we're all rooting for Danny. At least, in the book version, we're all rooting for Danny. And we were in the show too, to a certain extent. Um, hopefully we'll get to a place with her that even if we're not happy, it's much more satisfying and much more consistent perhaps. And yes, you're right. I mean, from, from very early on, even in Game of Thrones, you start to see, I call it hubris. It's maybe not hubris yet in a Game of Thrones. It will become elements of that. You see that building, you see moments where she makes these terrible decisions so yes, there, there's a history there, but I don't know. I, I'm not sure what kind of ending I want or expect for her. Yeah, it's yeah. not going to be the ending I perhaps wanted initially. I, I don't think we're going to get that. I'm sort of a romantic. I was hoping that you know she and John would live happily ever after. I kind of knew that wouldn't happen, uh, that they wouldn't be able to share the throne and you know go on and, and rule peacefully together. I don't know. What did, what did you imagine in terms of... What did you want, but what did you think would happen? Let me add, those are two different things. What did you want for Danny, and then what did you think would happen? I think I always had a notion in the back of my mind that she was that she was going to have some kind of turn, and I think that there are a lot of indications, little breadcrumbs throughout the books that you know she's trying to be a benevolent dictator Mm -hmm. and of course dictators sort of part of that phrase (laughs) (laughs) so i always kind of expected to that that was going to end up consuming her that being a benevolent dictator never really works yeah um i don't think i think that this that last season should have been twice as long yes and they should have really tried to develop her instead of having her snap develop her sort of 
slow descent into this sort of ethical morass where she, yes. where you really believe Martin's great at creating like an ethical fork where it's yes. like, okay, you do that. That'll be unethical. You do that thing. That'll be more unethical. So which one are you going to choose? Yes. How much more interesting would that be than yeah. just this idea of, Oh, the people don't love me as much as they love John. John doesn't want to be my lover anymore. Um, you know, using Miss Sandy as kind of a plot mm -hmm, point to mm -hmm. fuel her revenge. I mean, there were so many, just like you said, lazy plot points mm -hmm. in that last season and just tired, tired plot points yeah. that we've seen so many times before. Game of Thrones is better than that. And I agree with you. I, I would love to see more of that ethical dilemma. That's right. And, and that's what and Game of Thrones does so well, right? Yes. The politics of the flaws in her political approach. Mm -hmm things that she was starting to learn certainly when she was in Essos, but then seeing that play out in Westeros. Mm -hmm. And it, again, I have faith. I think we'll hopefully get there if we ever get the last two books. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> Poor yeah, Martin. I'm sure he's so badgered <laughs> at this point. Uh, <laughs>